From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Are You Not Entertained podcast. This week, something special for you, the first in a new series. Uh, this time, it's called The Bucket List. And here to explain exactly what this is all going to be about, my two partners in crime, Roger Mitchell. Rog, come in. How are you, mate? All right? I'm good. I'm good. I'm feeling good. Looking forward to this. And, excellent, um, excellent. We can get straight into it. All right. And uh, rounding out the team, the ever bullion Giles Morgan. Captain, come in. Hello, Grant. Hi, Rog. Lovely uh, to see you both. We have the privilege of seeing each other. I'm still recovering from indigestion, both from Lake Como and the little weekend in Madrid. So I'm um, feeling fairly solid. So um, <laughs> I'm hoping this show will help sort of move things along, so to speak. Excellent. I think that probably comes under the heading TMI for the audience, Charles, but thanks for sharing anyway. I'm sure there are plenty of people who might uh, miss the next couple of minutes of this podcast while they go outside and heave into a bucket. Anyway, <laughs> talking of buckets, why don't you uh, explain to people what the bucket list is all about and uh, and explain who our very fine sponsors are for this particular show. Yeah, so we wanted to do um, a series of shows um, that celebrate the thing that we talk about all the time, which is obviously sport and, and maybe the pantheon of sport and where even this, um, this show gets its name from, of Are You Not Entertained?, and the sense that many people talk about in pubs and bars all over the world is what might be on your sporting bucket list? What, what's the sporting events that you may, really would love to go to? So we wanted to talk about it because we should celebrate sport for all the good things about it. But even to try and discuss why some sports are on the bucket list, how do they keep themselves on the bucket list? How do they stand out? What, what is the bucket list all about? Why do some sporting events capture the heart and imagination of some fans and others just don't. So what we talk about is that the tectonic plates changing within sport and events changing, consumption changing. And how does that affect bucket list events? Does it? Or as Roger talks about the Hollywood, or whether they have to fight very hard for their survival. So over the course of what will be five shows, we'll be getting various uh, guests to come on to talk about their own bucket list, the sports that they're perhaps involved with, and maybe explore a little bit about bucket lists and, and, and that evolution. Fantastic, fantastic. And as I, as I hinted at at the top there, we have been uh, we have been sponsored. We have a sponsor for this show, Jots. And so why don't you continue and uh, explain who is standing behind this particular series of conversations? Well, they all always talk about, in my world, a sponsorship fit, i.e. does the brand match the, the event? And this, this company certainly does, Infinity Sports Travel, which is a really cool business. They do a lot of things, but effectively for the sports fan, that Infinity put on cruises for fans and take them to the great sporting events to create fan experiences and to sail people, not just to the events and then to put on, you know, uh, I guess bed and breakfast and dinner and, and carousing and presumably a very good time, but then take them to other places. So at the Rugby World Cup, Infinity Sports Travel have been parking their large cruise liners down near in sort of Nice and Marseille. But then after that, heading off to Ibiza for a, a little extra time just to carry on the party spirit. And I think what they're trying to do is 
is to try and reimagine what sport fandom is all about. So for us, a fascinating brand because they are absolutely targeting travelling sporting fans and they've targeted the Rugby World Cup. But I know they're looking at the Olympics and big sporting events in the future. So as at our United Tain, we're very pleased to welcome Infinity Sports Travel into our family and hope that they can get us eventually to the Super Bowl, which is really where I have always wanted to go. But I think we're going to have to go on stage progress through, through, our, through our episodes to get to that. So delighted they're on board. Fan, fantastic. And um, at the risk of letting you do all the heavy lifting early on, Giles, I promise Roger and I will join in, um, it feels sensible that you should probably let people know who is our first guest on the bucket list and give them a little bit of background for those that aren't familiar with his epic uh, body of work. Yes, so we're joined this week by Sir Andrew Strauss, who, for the cricket fans around the world who listen to this show, he's one of the great opening batsmen um, that ever played the game for England. I'll read out a few stats because they're quite impressive. Is He played at the very top level, international level, for nine years um, between 2003 and, and 2012. He played exactly 100 test matches with an average of 40.91, um, which is pretty handy. He bowled only six balls in his one-day international career and got no wickets at all. So I think it's fair to say he wasn't much of a bowler, um, but he is also the most successful uh, fielder um, in English cricket history, having caught even more than Ian Botham. So on the field, one of the absolute gods in the pantheon. But in 2015, three years after his retirement, he became the ECB, which is the England Cricket Board, um, Director of Cricket and was one of the architects on moving cricket forward in England into a whole new era, welcoming in 2020 cricket properly, seeing the evolution of the white ball game, which is obviously 2020 cricket and ODI, one day international cricket. And he also had the time when his wife, uh, Ruth, passed away in 2018, created the Ruth Strauss Foundation in 2019 to help uh, victims of, of cancer sufferers. He really is a true Corinthian in every sense of the world. And as I was looking through LinkedIn, trying to find other things, he's also the second most successful England cricket captain of all time, who's won an Ashes series both home and away, not something many people can boast of. So no one better, I think, to talk about both what may be on his own bucket list, but maybe more interestingly, what is the cricket bucket list today and how is it going to change tomorrow? Beautifully done, Jono. Well, it seems uh, opposite that we, uh, we invite Mr Strauss to join us. What do you think? Andrew, a very warm welcome to the Bucket List and to Are You Not Insane. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Giles. Very excited about what's to come. Well, we have a new sponsor and who are launching us, no, well, pun entirely intended, into some new directions to really try and discover what makes bucket lists for sporting fans and the arguments that we might have in pubs about what event would you go to if you could go anywhere in the world and watch it. And we'll come back to your own personal ones one of the reasons we were really keen to have you on the show is that your sport of cricket, probably since the days you started playing as a, as a wee lad all those years ago, has changed immeasurably. Do you look on at the game of cricket right now, just in general, with a great amount of pride of where the sport is and as a sort of economic powerhouse, and we read the headlines about it being one of the most powerful leagues in the world, do you look on it with some wonderment of where cricket is now, as opposed to maybe when you started your first-class career in the end of the 90s? I, I do. I mean, I think that you, you've sort of hit the nail on the head there, that there have been these sort of seismic events within the game of cricket over the last... Oh, probably 40 years, really. I suppose we need to go back that far. But um, but players have never been paid better. 
um, never have they had more opportunities to to ply their trade both at home and abroad. Um, more and more people around the world are watching the game. Uh, we're seeing the game develop and grow in loads of different nations that aren't traditional uh, cricket nations. I think over 100 different nations have got a T20 team, for instance. Um, and more and more money is coming into the game. So like, I think we're on this sort of virtuous circle of, of growth. Um, but I, I suppose for traditional cricket fans, it's more complicated than it was in the past. In the, in the past, it was international cricket and mainly test cricket um, and, and the odd World Cup. And that was it. So unless you're obviously a fan of county cricket or whatever, in which case you were sort of interested in the, your domestic market. So things have changed a lot. Um, and I, I think, you know, you, some might argue with sport for choice. There's too much choice there. Uh, but I think there's some phenomenal opportunities to watch the best players in the world playing in different formats against, uh, you know, it, with a lot of context that, uh, attached to it as well. So let's go back in time as a young boy, as all of us who played cricket as young lads, and that's, you know, particularly back then, it was very much a boys' sport, and obviously that's changed a lot. Can you remember going back to when you were eight years old, knowing that you might be beginning to show some talent as a cricketer, what your aspiration might have been, what you thought as an eight-year-old, what you would love to have done, you know, if you could make it as a cricketer? Or do you remember that first moment of what that aspiration might be when you were a young man? Yeah, well, I think it was very simple. You know, back in those days, it was all about uh, playing in a national series, wasn't it? And uh, so representing England and playing in a national series. And of course, I suppose, uh, I think pre-1992, we didn't get any overseas test matches televised. So it was all about playing test matches at home. And if you were a cricket fan, you were absolutely enthralled by whoever was touring that year, whether it was, you know, Pakistan or West Indies or Australia or South Africa, you know, every year that was the excitement, wasn't it? That we're going to see these, these um, world-class players coming and playing their trade in English conditions, but mainly test cricket. I mean, there, there might've been a few one days, but they were very secondary, weren't they? And um, so for a, for a young English cricketer, it was about representing your country firstly, and then you know, I think very much around that that opportunity to to test yourself against the the Aussies. Really, I mean, but of course, in the in the late eighties, early nineties, you know, Australia, while they were very good, they weren't probably the best in the world. That that still that mantle still was held by the West Indies at that point. And then if you fast forward now, you've got young lads, a bit older than maybe the eight-year-old, but they're, they're young boys. What do you think their aspiration is, if in a cricket sense, of what would be the ultimate now? Yeah, I mean, that, that is a very good question. I, so I think that they, they naturally love the T20 format. You know, so I think that the idea of playing short, sharp, um, high-tempo cricket uh, would be appealing to them. You know, they're more likely to watch the 100 or the IPL than they would a lot of English test cricket. Um, I think the exception to that is is the Ashes, actually. And obviously, we had such a phenomenal Ashes series this year. Uh, you know, Boyd, both by the quality of cricket, but also by England's approach, quite frankly, and, and playing that sort of positive, aggressive style of, of play. Uh, that that really registered with my kids. So I think that's really encouraging, actually, in so many ways for those of us who are Test cricket fans. But by and large, I think there is a 
a move around, you know, the younger generation wants to do things shorter and sharper and uh, they've got less time on them. They don't really have less time on their hands, but they pretend they have less time on their hands. So, uh, so uh, yeah, they're sort of moving in that direction, no doubt. Strauss, you've set me up beautifully for a question there, even though you, you're singing from Roger's hymn book there about the duration of games and stuff. But when, we, when you talk about these formats and you talk about the Ashes, obviously this summer was just a phenomenal summer of Test cricket. I mean, I think anyone new to cricket could not have helped but fall in love with test cricket every single one of those games could have gone any which way and I wonder your thoughts on baseball because as phenomenally entertaining as it is as much excitement as it brings to the game do you worry that if they had they could have lost that series five nothing Stokes's team if that had happened do you think baseball might be strangled on the vine by the media I mean the media has such a influence on it and I and I, I remember seeing two consecutive tests I think it was last year where they won one in exhilarating fashion and lost the next one. And the media coverage swung from this is the future of cricket to you can't take those sort of chances. What impact does the media have these days and, and how dangerous are they, in inverted commas, to this kind of change in the, in the way people play cricket? Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I think, you know, when, when they f- first started doing it in 2022, I, I think there was that feeling there amongst the sort of the wizened kind of uh, uh, media pundits that you, you can't play test cricket this way. This isn't proper test cricket. They're going to get found out. Yeah, it might work for a short period of time, uh, but the opposition teams will adapt and you'll you'll end up looking very stupid. Um, now, the, the truth is, you know, England started doing that, having won one out of their last 17 test matches. They then went to sweep the floor in the English summer. They went out to Pakistan and, and won three test matches out there. We, We've only ever won two test matches out there in our history. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and then obviously followed that up uh, with uh, the phenomenal performance in the Ashes series. And, and by the way, you know, they overdid it at times. And, and probably if they played a bit yeah. more uh, smart cricket, that they would have got over the line at Edgebaston. So, you know, I, I think there are still going to be people waiting in the wings to knock them back if it doesn't succeed. There's no doubt about that. But I think they've got a body of evidence now that suggests, A, that this is the best approach for this group of England players we've got now. Uh, But also, I think that it's setting a template for other teams to emulate. I I mean, it's the first time in my life I've seen an Australian team that's generally been the aggressor completely lost not knowing how to react, you know, trying to play no. defensive cricket, trying to hang in there. And while they did it reasonably well at times, at times they look all at sea. So um, so I think we, we're seeing the sort of um, progression of test cricket happen right in front of our eyes at the moment. Um, and more and more players, more and more teams are going to play this way as much as anything, because more and more players can play this way yeah. naturally. Um, and so... It's a kind of uh, self-perpetuating thing in a lot of ways. Andrew, is the way that baseball has evolved a direct descendant from 2020 and how players play with much less fear, play the odds in a different way to the sort of traditional coaching manual of the 1950s, sort of the Chris Cowdery type sort of books that then went through the generations as a straight bat and, and all the rest of it. Is this just genuinely from... 2020 that's just changed the approach to to, to the game? Yeah, I think to begin with, there was an evolution of skills. So players that play a lot of T20 cricket started realising sort of the array of shots that they can have in their armoury and and obviously started practising them as well. 
but as much as anything, it's a it's a evolution of mindset and approach. So, you know, if you think back to 2015, we took T20 cricket and we brought it into the 50 over game, and that was very much the basis of our our 2019 World Cup win. Was was playing more aggressive, positive cricket, putting the pressure on the opposition by by taking risks at the right time. Um, and I, I remember when I was involved with England cricket, talking about, well, can we do something similar in Test cricket? And it was, you know, I was I, I was pretty keen on this as an idea, but of course at that stage we had Alistair Cook as captain, and and you know he wasn't really the right man to embody that, um, and so it just wasn't the right time. And, and that's not saying he wouldn't be keen to do it. It's just it, with someone like Ben Stokes as captain, I think it gives you such an impetus, doesn't it? Because he 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 has that sort of aggressive, positive, risk-taking nature to the way he plays. And if, if he's leading that, it's much easier for other people to follow. Is he one of the, the best players that you've seen, Stokes, in terms of what uh, he's well, doing for I, the I, game? I mean, I, I, I would say that he's probably played three out of the best five innings I've ever seen an England batsman play. Uh, I mean, staggering. You think back to the World Cup final, you think about uh, Leeds in the last Sashes series, and then uh, even his innings at Lords, the Sashes series was utterly phenomenal so you know he's one of these guys that has all these skills but he has this ability to do it under the utmost of, of pressure and, and that is very unique very very few people worldwide are able to do that Andrew lovely to lovely to have you on I'd like to just go slightly lateral uh, we've just seen the Ryder Cup that had I think ever increasing elements of edge to it Rory McIlroy getting extremely anxious the fans, everything like that. People worried about New York next time around and how bad it's going to get. I was fascinated by your comments uh, around dressing room culture in cricket. And you said there was a need to kind of like take a little bit of the nastiness out of it. I, I don't know whether you were referring necessarily to sledging or that slightly darker element of it. This year we saw... The Long Room and Lords, something that none of us of our generation had really ever seen before. Where do you think the idea of really hardball competition sits for cricket now compared to what younger people think is acceptable? Oh, you hit me with a tough old question there. Um, <laughs> so so I, I think, I mean, it's an interesting one because I think we are living in a more polarised world, full stop. You, you know the rise of social media and all that sort of stuff, and so I, I think people get increase, increasingly entrenched in their views. Uh, and I suppose sports fans are no different in that regard. Um, I, I think uh, teams are under more and more pressure to win and potentially win at all costs. Um, and I, I feel like there's a real danger that. Uh, players and coaches don't look at the bigger picture. Uh, and the bigger picture there is we want to engage people in the in the way we play as much as winning and losing. Um, and that we, as a, a group of people, have to stand for something. And I, and I think that's actually what I've, um, Stokes and McCullum have done brilliantly well. They've, they've talked a lot about breathing new life into the test format as being their ambition as much as winning and losing. In fact, often they've said, like, winning and losing doesn't matter that much, you know, which I think is probably overplaying it a bit because it always does. Um, and I think that the dressing room culture comes from what those leaders are not just saying, but what they're doing as well. So how, how they role model that stuff. 
Um, I, I think with, with regards to dressing room culture, uh, you know, I, I definitely feel like when I was growing up, it was a very hierarchical culture, a lot of piss take, uh, a lot, you know, you could argue a bit verging on bullying. Um, and a lot of people that were really deep down pretty selfish. They were just worried about themselves. And I, I think that's what needs to change. And of course, you know, English cricket has, has been hit squarely between the eyes with this whole sort of, you know, uh, discrimination, racism, et cetera. And, um, and that's another element that probably people, uh, you know, I don't think people were obviously race, racist, um, certainly not the people that I played with, but I think maybe there was some sort of unco- unconscious thing there, which the game can't afford not to address. And, and probably the other element to say without sort of waffling on for too long is, you know, women's cricket, like w- women's cricket for a lot of people, even sort of 15 years ago, would probably be seen as such a sort of minority thing relative to men's cricket. And now it is just growing so quickly. Um, and brilliant to see the 100 and the, the, the women playing such a big part of the 100. Brilliant to see the England women's team, you know, playing a brilliant Ashes series this summer as well. And just the number of girls that are playing the game in school and clubs, it's just gone through the roof. So uh, that's really encouraging. And that'll further, I think, help us to ingrain this idea of, um, you know, that creates not just a sport for men, but also, you know, we need to be inclusive and, and try and make this a sport for everyone. On that, I mean, you are one of the great England captains. Your record shows that. Probably going against my nature a little bit. I felt Australia and their captain missed an opportunity at Lord's to do the kind of thing you're talking about there, which is appeal to something, you know, called purpose or something like that, especially after the, the sandpaper scandal that they had. If you were captain, would you have just let him stay at the crease and say, this isn't for us, this isn't how we win? Well, it's a it's a very good question as well. I mean, I... I um during a Champions Trophy game, I pulled back a Sri Lankan batsman because he collided with our bowler. Um, and that didn't go down particularly well with my team or with my coach, actually. But I definitely felt, you know, and that was actually in some ways a reaction to what had happened a couple of years previously with Paul Collingwood, who, who didn't call a batsman back. Um, so so I think there's a, there's a line to, to draw then. And, you know, I don't think Australia did anything wrong by the rules of the game. I don't really feel it was outside the spirit of the game. I, you know, um, but I think if you, I think they did miss a trick. You know, I think it would have been very well received if he had yeah. called and called Bairstow back, and I think they would have won the game anyway. Um, That's right. So th- they probably would have regrets about that. Um, but at the same time, you know, those, those moments as a captain are really tricky because. Um, you know, you, you've got to make a judgment as to what, were we doing something unfair there? Were, were we taking advantage of the rules? Were we acting against the spirit of the game? Or was uh, Johnny Bairstow just being dozy? And, uh, that, that, you know, that's a very hard one to answer. Um, and you could definitely argue that one both ways. Andrew, have you, um, I'm sure you have, paint a picture of what an IPL final is like or the IPL in general. For, for those listeners of ours who've perhaps seen it on telly, but what have you seen, what have you witnessed from, from the IPL, which is this gargantuan cricket league that is seen to be changing the, the face of cricket perhaps forever. Try and paint a picture of what it's like to be at one of the great stadiums in India 
at a, at a final? It's very hard to describe because I, I think the, the intensity is off the charts. The noise is off the charts. Um, the, the level of engagement is off the charts as well. You know, and, and in a lot of ways, I think the IPL is a sort of shining example of kind of India's increasing confidence as a nation, actually. Um, and, and that's just breeds onto the cricket field as well. So um, certainly, uh, in terms of atmosphere, it's the best event I've ever been to an IPL final. Um, uh, and, and of course, you've got many of the best players in the, in the world. With that extra context around, you know, it, there are... There are people from different nations in the same team playing against players from different nations in other teams, et cetera. Um, and yeah, so, so that feeling that it's growing all the time, you know, that that's the place to go. It's almost like the Hollywood of cricket. You know, if you want to make it anywhere, you have to make it there. Um, and so it, it, it's staggering and it's not, it's not subsiding anytime soon. In fact, you know, when you look at it at the moment, it, the, the tournament lasts, well, sort of 10 weeks or so it's very hard to see how that's not going to expand in time so um so it's going to be interesting to see how we fit everything together you know that sort of international bilateral cricket we've got all these global events um other domestic tournaments around the world you know the, the best players are going to be in extraordinary demand over the next few years and what we know for a fact is the IPL is going to be able to pay far more than anyone else. So do you think that the IPL is the greatest exposition of cricket in the world now? Not from your perspective, but just in general. Is it, is it, the, is it the, the showcase for the sport now? Well, I think just the, the one caveat I'd have with that is all these domestic T20 leagues have much bigger audiences domestically in their own countries than they do abroad. I mean, the IPL is the one that sort of breaks out from that and and um, you know I, I'll watch it in the UK but and many other people will but I still think global events have that extra context of everyone being interested all around the world and so you know the 50 over World Cup which is obviously just starting now I still think it's a fantastic event that, that the World Cup final is something that the players still are passionate to be involved with the World T20 I, I mean I would argue maybe not as not as big as the the 50 over World Cup, but others might disagree with me on that. Um, so I think IPL final, 50 over World Cup final, and then the Ashes series for an English or an Australian player. Um, I, I think other bilateral cricket is pretty much getting squeezed out, really. I mean, you know, a South Africa versus West Indies series is not going to be watched particularly by anyone now, uh, which is a great shame, but it's just a reality. Strasley, coming on to um, the, the subject of bucket lists, sporting bucket lists, you know, every, every sports fan in the world has a bucket list of their own. And of course, you have been fortunate enough not only to play in many people's bucket lists, which would be, you know, an Ashes Test Series or, or you know, one day finals or whatever it may be, but actually Captain England. I mean, as, as bucket lists go, that's pretty high up there. Just give us a sense of your own personal bucket lists, the items that you've managed to tick off, and then and then we'll come on to perhaps ones you haven't. Uh, you know, some of those great sporting moments where you've actually managed to do something or experience something or be somewhere or play somewhere that is one of those things that is, was a lifelong dream of yours. In any sport or just... Any sport, any sport at all, because I, I, I haven't met a sportsman yet that wasn't a fan of uh, every sport in the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think... Um... Again, like I would go, well, first of all, World Cup finals. 
you know, I, I love team sport. I love the drama that builds through a tournament. Uh, I was lucky enough to watch the 2015 Rugby World Cup final, uh, that that, that new, famous New Zealand victory over Australia. I thought that was a phenomenal event at Twickenham. Obviously, it would have been so much better if, if England had been involved. Would have loved to have been there in 2003, obviously, and that, that would probably, you know, any any final where your team wins it, you think about the 2019 Cricket World Cup, you, you want to be there, don't you? You want to savour it. Um so, so, so that would be one. I haven't, I haven't been to a football World Cup at all, um, and you know the idea of a, a, a football World Cup final is is staggering. Uh, Olympics 2012. I, I mean, I wasn't there when you know that Super Saturday and all that sort of stuff. But I, I think watching the hundred meters in Olympic final would be brilliant. I did go and watch some other events uh, during that 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 Olympics, uh, which were equally extraordinary. Um, and then for me, because I'm just a golf tragic, um, it has to be, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the Ryder Cup is a fantastic thing to be a part of. It's, I think if you're there, it's quite a hard spectacle to actually see much golf. I agree completely. But I'd love to go to the Masters, and that's one that is very firmly on the bucket list. And for one reason or another, I've yet to, to achieve that. But that, that will happen. I've got no doubt. Andrew, I've got a question that's linked to that, but it's regarding your two boys. If you and your boys put together their top 10 bucket lists, how much overlap is there in the Venn diagram, in your opinion, as to what they would see as their bucket list and what you've just said here? Hell, that is a very good question. I mean, so my youngest son's an absolute avid Arsenal fan. So, you know, Arsenal playing in the Champions League final would probably be his number one bucket list item, I would have thought. Um, the other interesting thing, and, you know, I'm a big fan of boxing, so I, I love watching those big KSI, Tommy now. Fury. They, they love those ones. <laughs> yeah, so they love those crossover <laughs> events where you've got these, you know... The no shit, which Sherlock. <laughs> which I find utterly staggering. Um, don't be, because, don't be. <laughs> well, it, it's staggering because it's not, you know, that's not about best versus the best but but i tell you what they've done a brilliant job on is building the narrative around it and the, the hype and all that sort of stuff and, and it goes to show you know sport is not necessarily it is as much as anything about context and narrative as it is uh, about the quality of the players on the pitch yeah no i think i think that you know that was slightly unfair because i was leading up to that all the way through the sponsors of this series you know i wonder whether they they think about the next generation and what that bucket list is going to look like i know that my two kids slightly older than yours a couple of years you know one of them was offered at como tickets to go and see that fight because the zone people offered him to go and see a KSI fight and and like he couldn't wait to tell his sister and is organizing to get to Manchester and you know um I've offered them to go to other things get tickets for other things and you know it's meh but not for that one and I think that's what that's one of the challenges that that, that we've got as an entertainment product is that it's significantly changed and I think we all need to think about that a little bit uh, yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you anymore. I, I think um, engaging people, you know, when we think about sport, it's about engaging, we're in the entertainment business, which yeah, it's an old cliche, but it's very true. It's how how do you engage people? And I, I think the people running sports, their idea of how to engage people is completely different to 
the people running, you know, who, who are running these these influencer accounts and all that sort of stuff. I mean, um, you know, I remember talking to Barry Hearn a long time ago about how we grow sport, and I won't say his exact quote, but he was words to the effect of all your top players are going to be driving around in Ferraris and stumbling out of nightclubs at 2 a.m. with very fit birds on on their arm. You know, that was his 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 sort of uh, philosophy. And you can see kind of what he's going out there, which is, you know, you get, you, you get, you, you start creating these sort of, these entertainment figures rather than sports people. You sort of break out of the sports world um, and, and you get the sort of hero worship and all that sort of stuff. Um, of course, when you are talking to the ECB about growing the game, they'll talk about their participation programs and all that sort of stuff, which is equally valid, but it, it, it's, that's not going to excite people. You know, that's not going to get people going, you know what, I want to play cricket for the first time in my life. So it, you probably have to look at it from both the top and the tail in that regard. Just before my colleagues come in, I've got one follow-up here, which again takes me back a little bit to what I was saying earlier about sledging or tension or everything like that. The reality, Andrew, and I'm not saying that I agree with this, is, but the reality is in today's world, somebody would come to you and say, look, can we ramp up this Kevin Peterson stuff? Because that sells in spades. Now, if that had happened to you at the time and somebody said, look, keep going here, keep going, this is magnificent. You know, how, how would you as a serious sports person at the elite level, how would you have dealt with that kind of like entertainment type push? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, that's a hard one to answer because I, I think back in the day, our approach was almost like, just block out the media. Let's focus on what we need to do. You know, the four walls of our dressing room, our little sanctuary from it all, and and blah blah blah. Now you just can't. The sport can't afford to do that. And actually, quite frankly, players are more interested in growing their own brands than they used to be. Um, so the whole sort of drive to survive type thing, the sort of fly on the wall documentaries, that they become more and more part of it. The players themselves are sort of giving. You know, they're, they're producing their own content. Um, and I suppose, yeah, drumming up rivalries, all that sort of stuff is, is part of it. I mean, I, uh, instinctively, I think I would find that hard be, because that's just not my style. Um, but I'm sure that other other captains, including Ben Stokes, quite frankly, would, would find it much easier to, to play that game. Um, so I, I suppose the point being that sport is shifting all the time. Nothing ever changes the same. And demands on an England captain now are, are very different from in my day. Andrew, we've um, we've come to the end, and um, I, I think I saw uh, Grant's eyes just go wide with delight when you you mentioned the Masters as your bucket list. He's been a couple <laughs> of times, and I've no doubt at all that um, if he goes or we find some way of getting you there, that he'll happily guide you around. The, Not a uh, problem. The the, the 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 beautiful fairways of, of Augusta. No, no golf tragic well. needs guiding around those fairways. Bro. We, know, we know every inch of them before we set foot on the property. Yeah, and by the way, so I did forget one other, but just before we go, British Lions. So obviously, going on a Lions tour would be... There you go. You know, well, there we can help you. I've never been able to do that. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's why I know a man who might be able to help, uh, Straussy. Um, well, I think if, if you get Grant at the Masters and me down at the British and Irish Lions down in... Uh, 
in Australia in 25. We could probably look you up there. And hopefully with our great sponsors at Infinity Sports Travel, perhaps they could sail us down on, on a cruise ship or two to get us there in some comfort as well. So Andrew Strauss, you've joined us on our first ever show of, of The Bucket List. And what a great pleasure it is for us to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, looking forward to seeing you uh, on tour, on golf tour or rugby tour in the years ahead. Well, I look forward to it. I've had a great time and, and best of luck with the rest of the series. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Cheers, Andrew. Guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, chaps, what an absolute delight. I was always a huge fan of Straussy when he was seeing cricket captain and uh, what a wonderful chat. I really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, I, I, I still have an image of him. I think 2005, he took a, a, a catch at second slip, left-handed, fully stretched out um, to dismiss whichever poor Australian batsman it was and I, I remember thinking we might win this series and and what a feeling it was and um, what he went on to do in, in later on in his career and then as a director of cricket he's been a an absolute talisman for the sport and I'm so pleased that he's pleased to see where the sport is going as well because for those of us who grew up with cricket and remember what it used to be like in county cricket in the 80s in a, on a rainy day with no one there and a sport that looked moribund and was going nowhere to where it is in the in the 2020s, it's 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 very exciting. I have to say that I've had no real exposure to Sir Andrew Strauss because cricket isn't covered here. And you know, whilst I've got quite a lot of knowledge about cricket in the in the 80s and even the late 70s, I don't of his period. Um, so that was really my first exposure to him, even you know, media wise. And I thought he was. Really, a splendid chap, and I, I really enjoyed his answers. I thought he was very honest, and um, you know, apart from the fact that he looked like a doppelganger of Sting, I, I really enjoyed that uh, forty-five minutes. I must say, he'd be very pleased with that. I'm sure he will. Who wouldn't be? <laughs> well, that's all we got time for, folks. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for the first uh, in our series of Bucket List shows. Our thanks to our sponsors, Infinity Sports Cruises. Uh, for backing the show and of course a very special thanks to Sir Andrew Strauss for joining us as our first guest lastly and most importantly our thanks to you out there for listening to us because if you weren't listening to us we'd just be three idiots talking to ourselves and while we do that all the time anyway it's nice to know there's someone out there listening so thanks very much for joining us we'll see you next time perfect perfect